Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Go get yourself a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. And remember to spell out other people the traditional way. O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. Did I spell that right? Audibletrial.com slash other people. There's over 150,000 titles to choose from. And you can listen to these audiobooks on your iPhone, your iPad, your Android, your Kindle, your MP3 player, whatever device you have. And I want to say Infinite Jest is available as an audiobook. I want to say somebody tweeted me that. Was that a joke? I need to go look this up. Apparently, it's it's a really good reading. So if you have 150 hours to kill, go get Infinite Jest on the house at audibletrial.com slash other people. These are audiobooks. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me taking uh, a relatively long time in a relatively empty room to talk into a microphone. This is you listening somewhere on the planet in the vast incomprehensible emptiness of outer space. How's that for a tongue twister? How are you? What's going on? I'm just talking over here. What's happening over there, wherever you are? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Robin Sloan is my guest. He's the author of the best-selling novel, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore, and uh, he has an interesting background professionally, working not only as a writer of fiction, but also in media and journalism and technology uh, or some combination thereof. He worked for uh, Twitter for a spell. So he and I are going to, you know, we're going to get into all of that in just a second. I should also note that Robin's novel was the official May selection of the TNB book club, the Nervous Breakdown book club. Uh, you guys know what that is, right? TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online uh, literary community slash culture magazine slash uh, what have you. It was founded back in 2006. It has its own book club for only nine ninety nine a month. You get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. Uh, that's a good deal. So go over to the nervous breakdown.com and uh, click on book club in the menu bar. If you want to sign up. So, uh, I'm coming up on episode 300 in case you haven't noticed. 
300, uh, 300 of these things. I feel like I need to book a, a, a good guest for that moment. Who should I get? I've been thinking about it. I tried to get Stephen King, like just on, on a wing and a prayer, but uh, his publicist, a very nice gentleman, responded to me almost immediately and said something like, Mr. King is not available for interviews. Very nice guy. You know, brief, but courteous. And, uh, what, you know, what are you going to do? It's Stephen King. I'm not going to hound the guy on Twitter or whatever. And, uh, you know, I've talked to Owen, his son, on this show. Uh, you know, and he and I are friendly. We go back a few years. And I just had Kelly Braffitt on the show, uh, she being Owen's wife. So, you know, maybe if I were more aggressive, if I were more of an operator or whatever, I would ask them. But... That seems awful. I can't do that shit. It's too weird. And probably rude. And just, you know, no way. It would feel weird for me. And you know what? With regard to Stephen King, he's got to be sick of talking about himself. Some people, it's just, a, you, you reach a threshold, you know, like a threshold. I don't know. I'd love to have him on the show, but I could sort of understand why he wouldn't want to keep talking in interviews. So, <clears throat> you know, I'll figure it out. I thought about Mary Carr as a possibility, but here's the problem. She seems like a really good talker and somebody who would be fun to have on the show, but with the, with writers who are primarily memoirists, memoirists as she is, it's all in the books. And for, you know, uh, thinking about the nature of this show and what we tend to talk about, it feels like it might be redundant and that the interview we would do would be a rehashing of what's in the book which isn't always the case, but sometimes is. You know what I'm saying? I'd, but I'd still love to have her on. Maybe I'll ask her. We'll see. But then I would feel like I have to do all this research, you know, to make sure that I'm not sitting here asking her questions that she's, uh, she's already addressed at length. That's a big fear for me. Whenever I talk to anybody on this show, like I'm doing something that I feel is helpful to them and I'm trying to be of service to writers, but every time I do it, the irony is that I'm secretly terrified that they think I'm an asshole. <laughs> uh, life. So if you guys have any suggestions, I can't, you know, I can't make any promises that I'll be able to get it, get it done, uh, to your specifications. But if you have writers on your wish list that you'd like to hear me talk to somebody that you think would be a perfect person for episode 300 in particular, you can let me know. Uh, either via email, letters at otherppl.com, or over at Twitter, at otherppl. Uh, and to be honest, thinking about this, I wish I had a talent booker. I wish I had a professional person who would go out and line up these interviews for me. That's how these shows work in, in uh, you know, the larger entertainment media. They're bookers. But uh, me, doing a podcast, of course, I do it all. I'm a one-man band. I work alone. I'm a lone wolf in the uh, literary uh, forest. I tried to get Teju Cole on the show, but got uh, no response. And uh, I tried to get Lori Moore. I sent her two emails, and she didn't get back to me. I really want to talk to her, too. I feel like I could have a very good conversation with her. I feel like a lot of people probably feel like they could have a very good conversation with her. And, uh, you know, maybe 
She's, she doesn't, you know, she's likely not aware of this uh, podcast. She probably doesn't even know what a podcast is. Or maybe, you know, maybe she does. I don't mean to sell her short. I just think that uh, if she knew how good of a conversation we could have, <laughs> how fun it would be, she would say yes quickly. And uh, Teju Cole, I feel the same way, but, you know, his publicist did not get back to me. Despite uh, two attempts. So, whatever, you know, that's the way this shit goes. 300 episodes, it's a lot of episodes, and uh, every time I hit one of these milestones, I find myself setting the bar a little higher. So before it was like, once I get to episode 300, and, and now I'm like, I just want to get to at least 365. So that, you know, if somebody wants to listen to an episode every single day for an entire calendar year, they have that option. And if one day down the road when I'm dead... My daughter is having a shitty year. She can like listen to this podcast every single day for a year and I can help her get through it. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm not sure if that would help to listen to me every day for a year, but you know what I'm saying? Justifications, odd logic, false summits. That's life. False summits. You just keep going. There's no summit. I like doing this. I keep talking to people. I keep talking to you. I keep talking to myself. I occasionally talk to my dog. I'll admit that. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest, once again, is Robin Sloan. His novel, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore, a New York Times bestseller, is available now in paperback from Picador. Great to have him here, and I hope you like our conversation. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Robin Sloan, author of Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. Um, I am in my living room slash dining room. I don't know what you call it. You know, it's... Uh apartment so I guess we don't have that many rooms but I'm sitting at my big long uh, kitchen table and uh, this is where I work most days 
I was going to say that's where you work, and, and where are you? Are you in the Bay Area? Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in uh, I'm in Berkeley, California, right across the bay from San Francisco. All right. So, and you work at this big long table. That's right. That's right. It's it's probably the coolest thing I've ever owned, furniture wise. It looks totally medieval. Okay, and like, did you buy it as a desk, or did you buy it as a dining room table, or did you was it some kind of hybrid situation? No, no, it's everything. We uh, we eat here. We sit around and drink coffees in the morning. Um, and uh, and I set up my laptop here during the day. Yeah. Wow. And I read somewhere that you uh, you know you credit Mr. Penumbras to uh, you know kind of jokingly to the Freedom Map, uh, which surprisingly is something that I haven't really talked about too much on this show, if at all. And I, I'm curious to hear you uh, you know talk a little bit about that and like what role it played in you getting your writing work done. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's crucial. Um, I've actually been a bit um, distressed this week because I made the the foolish choice to upgrade my operating system to the you know the brand new OS ten Yosemite that Apple just announced, and it turns out that Freedom doesn't work with the new one. So I'm I'm suddenly like my whole my whole flow has been disrupted. So what? But, uh, so yeah. What is it like? Just so people listening who might not know what it is, like what is the Freedom? Oh yeah, no. Of course, no. It's um, it's this app. It was it was created by this PhD student, um, a guy named Fred Stutzman, who was trying to finish his dissertation. Of course, he was procrastinating wildly, uh, you know, getting lost in the internet. And so he built this app. It's called Freedom, and um, it it does one thing. This is what I love. Literally, you open the app. It shows you a window with a field, and into that field, you can type a number of minutes. You know, so you might say. 120 minutes or 200 minutes or, or even just 30 or 40 minutes. And then after you hit return, your internet is knocked offline at this like super low system level. So even if you waver in your dedication, um, you know, even if you decide you want to check Facebook after all, you cannot. You've essentially set this trap for yourself um, and ensured that your, uh, your future self has got to, you know, keep working at least for a few hours. And I found it invaluable. I think it's great. It just creates the safe space to just think at a different tempo and, and yeah, not get drawn into the tabs and the, and the tweets. So like when you use this freedom app and you type in this time, just so that I get it straight, like if you type in five hours and then, you know, in some sort of emergency, you need to use the internet, you've got to use a different device. Like there's no way, there's no way you've to, got to use a different device. There is, there is a way around it, um, and, and it, it actually works pretty well. You can restart your computer entirely, at which point Freedom will get knocked out along with everything else, and you'll be back where you started from. But it turns out that at the point at which you find yourself restarting your computer to you know, circumvent this application, you just feel pretty stupid. You kind of think, <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. You know, I can wait. I can wait a couple hours. Right. Uh, it's right. good. You know, it's, cause I, for me, at least, and, and I don't know if this, is, if this is the way it works for other people, too, much of my own internet habit is really muscle memory. I find that I'll, without really consciously thinking about it, suddenly have opened a new tab in a browser and started to type in Twitter or New York Times or, or whatever it is. And, uh, and so it, it just kind of short circuits that. It, it, it makes it so that you're, you have to consciously decide what to do with your time rather than get whipsawed around by you know, these, these weird habits that, that have formed for for so many of us. Well, that's a, you know, that's a really good point because I feel like, you know, I, I'm, I'm that way. Like I have a ritual almost of internet and, and it's like this weird, almost OCD repetitive cycle of websites that I go to over and over again in an, in a kind of embarrassing way. And I feel like that's normal. It's totally normal. Yeah. And, and, you know, on, on one hand, there's an element of, of, you know, self-discipline and self-regulation here. 
But on the other hand, it's not entirely our fault because more and more these systems are being designed by their various designers and, and developers to do this to us. You know, like this is not an accident that Twitter and Facebook and, and you know, BuzzFeed and all these things have this really addictive property. So it's almost like any other addictive substance in your life. It's, I, I really sincerely think it should kind of come with a warning label and we should approach it with, um, you know, it's not, it's not like we have to give it up overnight and say, no, that, we can't have that stuff in our lives at all. But we should approach it with caution and, and, and really find ways to kind of bracket its use. Because, yeah, otherwise it, it totally sort of runs away with itself. And you look up and you're like, what, what did I actually do today? You know, I sort of consumed media in, right. in, in chunks 140 characters long. Yeah, exactly. And so and we should tell people, too, that you've worked at Twitter. And you, that's right. You that's have, right. I worked at Twitter for two years. Yeah. Okay. So you worked at Twitter for two years. You sort of, uh, the, I guess the 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 phrase "media inventor" has been used to describe you. I don't know. Is that something you embraced or came up with, or is that something that's? Oh been... yeah, absolutely. I mean, I yeah, and I I should say it's it. This is where I you know I kind of resist these dichotomies. I'm no I'm no enemy of technology. I'm definitely not an enemy of Facebook or Twitter or Buzzfeed or you know the tabs or any of it. Uh, I'm actually quite excited by them and, and the, the, these new capabilities that they give us. But uh, I, I think we just have to be careful and, and conscious about the decisions, decisions we make. Uh, you know, I was, was excited to work at Twitter. I'm proud of the work I did there. And, uh, and I'm somebody who does a lot of digital experiments all the time. So I am by no means a, a Luddite. Okay, yeah. Well, it, but it strikes me. It's, a, it's an interesting skill set and an interesting approach to have coming into the literary world and the literary marketplace and it seems like the perfect uh background to have in a way you know because i feel like there are so many writers out there who are trying to catch up and i think to a lot of ground has been covered uh, certainly in like the last eight to ten years by writers who might not have like a technological bearing to begin with but have developed one as a matter of necessity and because that's just the world that we live in but you sort of came to the literary game having already uh developed a really uh, like high level of um, acumen, at least comparatively speaking, and you've always had an interest in this stuff going back to childhood, correct? Oh, yeah, that, that's right. And, and it is, it's interesting to, to reflect on what that trajectory was like. In some ways, you know, as you, as you say, some people have started with those literary skills and had to develop these other digital skills. Um, I had the digital skills, and it's funny, I think, to look at some of my early writing and, and even early drafts of my novel I can see it. I don't know if others can see it, but I can see the traces of that kind of bloggy, short, bursty writing that really works better on the internet. And that's the kind of writing I had learned and the kind of writing I had been doing for years. It's the kind of writing that is sort of aware that it lives inside a tab in a web browser and that the user or the reader could like close it at any moment. <laughs> it's sort of it's sort of paranoid or fearful in a way. It's like okay, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. That's and the, uh, I gotta that's, stop. I that's gotta, where I had come from. Well, no, I got to stop you there because that's such an interesting point that you make, and it speaks very much to my own experience as a reader and a writer. Because I really like pointillistic literature. I like uh, literature that works in short bursts. I'm aware of the fact that it's an outgrowth of technology and the way that we read now. I mean, I think there's. I mean, I think I would like it anyway, but I think it's definitely heightened by the fact that, uh, you know, I've got seven tabs open and I'm clicking around on the Internet and I'm checking my Twitter on my phone every 10 minutes or whatever. And, um, you know, that definitely has an effect on a person's ability to sustain attention. It has an effect on, a, on the way we get used to receiving information. And 
I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you think that there's something wrong with that, like, or you know what I'm saying? Like, is something lost when that's the kind of uh, literature that we seek to write and read, or do you think that you can get a full? Um, uh, you, like, do you think you can you can get? I don't even know how to put it. Like, full literature. <laughs> um, <laughs> do, do you know well, what I'm saying? Do you no, know, do, I mean. Yeah, no, I know I absolutely do. And, and the answer has got to be that that no, if all we had was the short bursts and the, the sort of things made from scraps pasted together, we would definitely be missing out on something. Now, this is I mean, there's, there's, it's so densely packed. There's so many wonderful threads here, because on one hand, of course, you're right. It's actually not just the Internet. And even without the Internet, there would be pleasures in this kind of prose. And, you know, we see it in the work of a writer like um David Markson, who um, who died just a few years ago, but was a real an amazing pioneer. In I mean, he he was tweeting. His books were essentially yeah. were essentially these long you know lists of tweets that he labored over. They were finely crafted, but but it gave you that really pleasurable sensation, almost a kind of at least for me, it felt like eating potato chips or you know eating little handfuls of popcorn or something like that. And that's great. It's totally, well, he's, you know, pre-digital or doesn't, doesn't depend on, on being on, on screens. Well, he's a favorite of mine. In fact, I read uh, actual, I, I read like a couple of his lines at the end of every episode, like, cause he does these great, you know, it's all about like writers and artists who died. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh yeah. I just, I, I didn't, have... I didn't, I didn't know that. I love it. I'm so, I'm so happy to hear that you, uh, that you're a fan. I feel like he, uh, you know, this was kind of what people said about him his whole life, but and it's it's true now as well that he just does not get as much credit as he should. I think he should be about a hundred times more famous and and certainly better read than he is. Yeah, I mean, I feel like writers love him. I mean, I've talked to a lot of writers who love David Markson, especially that last cycle of books, you know, that he did before he died, where he, um, yeah, you know, he was just working in kind of like a tweet mode. Though I don't think he was ever on Twitter, was he? I don't know if he was. But... Uh, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Yeah, there's uh, there's a wonderful there's a wonder. It's it's amazing how these things collapse. There's this wonderful uh, Tumblr. I'm not sure if it's still operating, but it was for a while. In which the author would haunt the shelves at the Strand Bookstore in New York, looking for books that had been owned by David Markson and finding <laughs> his annotations in the margins. And then they would, of course, you know, scan that in and, and post it on Tumblr. It was just wonderful. This. I mean, that's for me, it was such a delight to see that um, being such a Markson fan. And I think that's actually a, a very um, lovely and, and it's a project that points us in the right direction because it turns out uh, we don't have to choose between long and short, between the present and the past, between digital and analog. It all kind of mashes together. And it's actually when we when we like juxtapose them, you know, that the most interesting things happen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess like that's like what I wrestle with is that I used to read really dense fiction, you know, with these giant block paragraphs that cover that spanned like multiple pages. And, you know, I think in the right environment, I could still do that now. It's harder because I have a small child and I'm very busy. And, you know, by the time I get to the end of the day, if I start reading one of those books, like I wake up with like the book on my face. Uh, but, <laughs> right. you know, there are a lot of authors uh, working today who work in a collage manner or work in kind of like short bursts or whatever you call it, um, whose work feels like really rich and deep to me, just like Markson does. And uh, I guess that's a matter of taste. And it's just trying to kind of parse whether, you know, how much of that taste is driven by my brain being, um, you know, mangled by technology or changed by technology. Maybe mangled is too hardcore of a verb, but, 
You know what I'm saying? How, right. how much of it is driven by technology and how much of it is just natural inclination and where I am right now as a person and as a reader? You know, it's trying to figure that out. Well, I think, I think, I think, our, you know, our brains do change, of course. I, and I think that that piece of it, even though, even though it's a mix, I, I always like focusing on that piece because I think it's useful for people to have that kind of introspection to kind of wonder perhaps about how their brains have changed or are changing. And I also, I think it can lead you in, in maybe surprisingly a, a sort of optimistic place. I take, uh, I take my notes from uh, a wonderful writer named Nicholas Carr, who wrote this really tremendous book called the shallows is all about this. It's all about levels of thought and it's about the ways these digital things kind of, kind of short circuit, you know, our brains, but he's always careful to say, remember, our brains are still plastic. This is not like a one-way trap door. And it turns out that if you find a way to step away from the, the pace of the digital stuff and the, the crazy, you know, pull to refresh of the phone, you can actually find yourself back in that, in that deeper kind of longer wave territory very quickly. I mean, your, your brain will sort of switch back or it's capable of switching back, um, over a course of not even months or weeks, but, but actually days. Well, you know what, you know, when it switches back for me, there's a couple of instances where I've noticed this. Um, one of which is in a movie theater and this is going to sound mm -hmm. a little bit absurd, but like, I can't get through a movie at home. Uh, there's a part of me that like, and I think it's just because of lack of sleep, child, blah, blah, blah. But, um, it's also like, you know, watching it at home, you got the iPad going while the movie's playing or the phone rings or whatever. And it's just like, I can't get, I can't access it. But if I go to a theater I can get through almost anything with like full attention. And uh, on the literary side of things, I find that my most pleasurable reading experiences of recent memory have happened on an airplane, uh, and particularly yeah. airplanes without Wi-Fi. <laughs> you yeah, know, that's right. Where you're just strapped into that seat and there's nowhere to go. And it's like all of a sudden, you know, you've knocked off like 150 pages and you're like, oh, that was so nice. You know, where did that, where did that go? Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, I, I think Wi-Fi and planes, man, I, I could not be more conflicted because I feel like in some cases it has almost saved my life. And uh, in other cases, uh, I mean, in, in most cases and really in my heart, I, uh, yeah, I wish it was, was banned or something because you're right. They, they used to be the last great bubbles of, uh, of disconnection. Yeah. Great. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like that. I mean, like, there's also like the old joke that like the bathroom, even the bathroom is gone now. You can still, you can bring the, the iPad into the bathroom or like the, right. the, the phone. I know, I know some people, who, I know some people who love showers and of course it's, you can't read in the shower. Um, I don't think, but you can definitely think in the shower, you can ruminate. And, uh, and, uh, I, I know some people who, uh, who claim to take sometimes many showers a day specifically just to set up that, that bubble. It's a little, it's like, it's like, it's like creating a zone where, where phones cannot go. Yes. Cause it's still not waterproof. It's like the last bastion. Yeah. I have a friend who's uh he's got a little bit of social anxiety and I used to live with him as an old roommate of mine. And like people would come over. He's a very funny guy. I've known him since I was a kid. And, uh, every time he would get uncomfortable, he would never say it, but he would just get up and take a shower. <laughs> and like, I would have That's to, really funny. yeah, I'd have to go back there and be like, dude, you know, like you got to relax. And you know, it's just, he was very, he was a nervous fellow. He still is, but absolutely funny. Well, you know, that, so I actually like that. I mean, that, that it's a, a sort of a strange scene, but I, I appreciate the fact that he, again, there's that sense of kind of recognizing something in yourself and then, and then taking action, taking appropriate action. And I think that we collectively, the big we of, you know, people who, who have smartphones and use this stuff. I actually think we're starting now finally to get a little bit better at this. I think this is my opinion, my reading of the world. 
I think we might have passed through the nadir of distraction and feeling frazzled and feeling like these machines are our masters. Um, and now that we've, we've had them for long enough, we're starting to kind of diagnose some of these problems. And, and you know, like me with my little freedom app, we're finding ways to, to erect these spaces. We're finding, <laughs> we're, we're all, we will all be your friend. We're all going to find ways to leave the room and and go take a shower. <laughs> hey, it's an effective method. So do you think that, I mean, like in addition to the Freedom App, are there other things that you think help you, uh, you know, create safe space to be concentrated? Or is it the Freedom App enough to get the work done? And then you, you have, what, a, an analog book, like a print book, and you're able to, to throw the phone across the room and not deal with it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, print print books are, are, are worth mentioning and worth underscoring. I think they're, um, you know, for, for all the the, the wonderfulness of, of ebooks and the fact that you can carry a whole collection with you and, and it you know doesn't weigh any more than than your phone or a little e-reader. I personally have for me the pendulum has swung back after being really into ebooks and buying and consuming a lot of them. I have sort of switched back over to print books almost entirely. Me too. There's a few exceptions, especially yeah. And I, I actually think I've heard from from a lot of people that that they're kind of making that transition. I think there's a lot of reasons for it. But one of them is uh, is definitely this sense of attention and um, this sense of you know oh great I like like the great feature of a book and and I guess you could say it's a feature of you know the Kindle and some other dedicated devices like that but the great feature is that it cannot show you your email right. you know it cannot tell you about anything else happening in the world yeah I mean that, it turns out is pretty wonderful it is wonderful it's like you know with the e-readers and I need to get like a dedicated one because and and dedicated meaning it only shows you ebooks you don't have internet access or email yeah exactly um, exactly but the problem is that like if you do your reading at night and you have a significant other who's like asleep like I I can't turn the light on so I got to get the iPad out and then you see what I'm saying? I think that's what that's what happens to a lot of people. Or I just need to get like a headlamp or something <laughs> like absurd. Um, but it's just you know it's an interesting world, and you seem to be uh, I don't know well versed in it. You've had a lot of different angles on it, and I, I guess I'm curious to ask you about the time that you actually spent inside of Twitter because I feel like that would be of interest to a lot of my listeners uh, because. Yeah, I, a lot of my listeners are writerly, obviously, and uh, I think writerly people have really taken to Twitter. I feel like Twitter is the preferred social media network of the literary set. Uh, is that you? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and so, uh, what like what was it like to be inside there? And like, when were you there? And like, what stage was Twitter at when you were there? Um, I was there from just about 2010 to 2012, which was a, a really nice time to be working at a company like because it was not just a little tiny startup anymore. It, you know, had resources and it was a few hundred people. You know, when I started, it was probably about 150 people. So that's not eight guys in a garage anymore, which in a lot of ways is a good thing. But it's also not a thousand people working at a shiny campus downtown. Um, it doesn't have all the structure of a real company yet. So it was, in a lot of ways, when I worked there, it was all the fun of a startup Um but also some of the structure of a, of a real company. And one of the things I always tell people and the things that I found at first surprising and then ultimately quite heartening was to realize how organic Twitter the service is. And, and Twitter the service, of course, is distinct from Twitter the company. Twitter the company has thousands of employees and it sells advertisements and you know has a bunch of money in the bank and blah, blah, blah. Twitter the service is what happens on the website between all the users and it always kind of blew my mind to be sitting around in meetings or just, you know, around the lunch table at Twitter 
and uh, everyone would be kind of articulating their own theory of Twitter. These are people who work there. These are people who like build Twitter and uh, they'd be arguing like, oh, no, no, it's good for this. Oh, no, no, people like it because of this. Oh, man, this is the most important thing. No, that's not important at all. And you kind of realize, of course, I had theories of my own. You realize, though, that an organic, when it's an organic system like that, the company is, in a lot of ways, just the caretaker. It's not like Twitter, the company, owns Twitter, the service, and what happens there. It's not like it's directing it, um, you know, it, it, or even building it the way that, you know, General Motors would build a car. Instead, it's just kind of like feeding it. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's like, man, like, like man, it. manicuring the grounds and... Uh, I'm kind of yeah, yeah. Making sure there's enough water and enough fertilizer in the soil and, and whatever else, and then you're kind of watching it grow with everyone else. Well, and uh, I always thought that was kind of awesome, actually. Yeah, no, and it's it's funny. I mean, it's funny and and not maybe unexpected, but also kind of disappointing to hear you say that everyone sitting around like the conference room table at Twitter has their own individual theory of Twitter because. I was hoping to ask you if there was like a, a unified theory of Twitter from the inside that you could share with us. Like, why does it work? How does it work? <laughs> like, uh, do you have? Any- I, you know what? Here's here's the irony. It was literally my job. I was on I was on the media team at Twitter, and and it was all of our jobs to come up with such theories and then share them with writers and journalists and you know pro football players and musicians and everyone else. And um, I came up with some theories, and I think some of them were were useful, but ultimately. Ultimately, for as much work as we did thinking about it, somebody would come along and the way that you would, they would use Twitter would be a total revelation. They would burn the doors down um, and people would love it and it would be something totally unexpected. So like the, the, the thing I love now, for instance, partially as a, as a writer, as a person who's interested in like words and language, is the rise of the Twitter bots. I don't know. Do you follow any bots on Twitter? No, I mean, there was like what? There was the horsey books, like bot. Wasn't that a bot that was doing? Yeah, that? horsey. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Horsey books is kind of the proto bot, and and now there's this whole menagerie of them, and and they all do different things. You know, there's a bot that I was and and recently completed tweeting every word in the English language. There's other bots that kind of take in take in text and then regurgitate them back out. And you know, I can just guarantee that when when the founders of Twitter began the service. And it was all about SMS messages kind of passing back and forth. They did not foresee that there would be these wildly popular accounts that were essentially like primitive artificial intelligences, just squawking borderline nonsense, nonsense at the world. And yet they are, and they're, and, they're, and they're kind of great. And sometimes they talk to one another, and you can kind of listen in on the, on the conversations of these robot minds. Yeah. And uh, it's awesome. I think and, you know, you could foresee such a thing. Well, I was just thinking there's like one, uh, there's like a Morrissey bot where I think they have basically created a database of every single Morrissey lyric ever written. And then the, the bot spits out some combination of them, which is like almost always like very depressing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I think those, I think some of those bots are, are actually, um, you know, if I was, you know, I don't know why I would be doing this, but if I was drawing up a great document, you know, listing the, the things and projects and, and people on the forefront of of experimental literature, I think a big part of my list would be would be the bot makers. Some of these some of these bots and the language they produce and the the images that come across in these tweets, I think they are truly truly literary. Okay, yeah, because I had a tweet like I tweeted something and it was I mean it was a thought and it's a thought that I continue to have that you know there's going to be eventually somebody who's going to write like a Finnegan's Wake type book on Twitter if it hasn't happened already where 
it's actually a great work of literature and it's thousands and thousands and thousands of tweets that when you read, you know, in, in, comprehensively is just like mind blowingly good. Uh, you, you agree? You know, it, it seems foolish to disagree. And I, and I don't think I do disagree, but I do have this question. I guess I'll, I'll say it's a live question in my mind. I, I struggle with it just, just as I think many people do. I wonder whether the very things that make Twitter attractive, which is to say that it kind of braids into everyday life and things come in these highly consumable pieces and, you know, it's kind of one after another after another. I kind of wonder if they work against that notion of a larger work merging. And, you know, for example, people have written coherent stories, these long, contiguous series of tweets, no Finnegan's Wakes yet, but some pretty good stuff. And I think what's interesting is how many people have consumed them in their streams, kind of following along live, almost the way you would watch a play, you know, that yeah. sort of liveness. And then how few people then read them after the fact, because there are some places that sort of collect them all together, bind them, you know, you might say into a, into a book or a, or a coherent story, but they seem somehow not to work in that format or people just aren't interested. Yeah. I don't know. I find that, I find that very weird and, and sort of provocative. I think that's that's a very good point. It's almost like a, there's a, a distinct performative element, even if somebody's working in a longer form or some sort of continuous storytelling. And it is. It's like a live performance that you're watching like you'd be at a concert or something. Uh, but yeah. I, I've never yeah. I've never gone back and like reread. But it, it's kind of hard to dig through, you know, old tweets and to do all that scrolling. But yeah, I mean, that's part of it, too. The system, again, you know, right, the system has has opinions of its own. And uh, and one of those opinions is this is not about the past, my friend. This is about right now right now yeah so uh, i guess like just to like maybe sum it up like do you think that twitter is is literature is there is there is it okay to call it that is um, it, does it have that component i would to it? i would put it i would put it this way i mean the, the short answer is is yes it's absolutely capable of producing literary work uh the slightly longer answer is that um and i i really believe this i think twitter has caused more people not just you know writer types but just all sorts of people to think about their sentences and to like craft their sentences on an almost word by word or syllable by syllable structure than like anything ever. Yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, if, if nothing else, if nothing else, we can look back in, I don't know, 10 years or a hundred and say, man, a lot of people thought about a lot of sentences and that's cool. I think that's an achievement. Uh, I think that's worth celebrating. It teaches concision. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I guess that that is important to say. It's a certain, you know, you're right though. It is. It's a certain kind of sentence, isn't it? It's the, it's the, it's not the, it's not the 14 page sentence in uh, Michael Chabon's new novel. It's not the long, you know, loping sentences full of subclauses. Yeah. Well, and it's also, it's. I, I think Twitter's wonderful. Like it's, it's wonderful for people who are literary and who love sentences and word making and all that kind of stuff. But. Um, it's also wonderful for joke tellers. I think comedians, it's an, it's a totally natural venue for them, uh, for people who quip and, you know, it's funny to, it's fun to try to be funny on Twitter and to try like when you come up with a good one and you compress it and it feels, it feels right. You know, it's, it's usually pretty easy to tell when you've got a good tweet I find, and they usually come fast as opposed to slow, at least for me anyway. Um, like if yeah. I, like yeah, if, yeah. if I spend a long time on a tweet, it's almost definitely doomed. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of what I've uh, read about haiku and the, the sort of philosophy of the creation of haiku back in the back in the, the heyday of, of the haiku poets in, in Japan, where apparently, at least as I've read it, 
the spirit of the haiku was to write it in one stroke. It was not something that was supposed to be revised or, or yeah, as you say, even particularly um, premeditated. The idea was inspiration would strike and you would kind of pick up your brush and wham, you'd kind of go at it in one great stroke and either it was good or it wasn't. And there is something, there is something about that to Twitter, isn't there? Definitely. Definitely. That's like, that was, that's pretty cool. So like, we're talking like one of those, like, like painting the Japanese characters, but like not even lifting the brush essentially. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You're just like, go at it. Right. And if you, if you lose velocity and, and have to stop and, Oh wait, hold, hold on. You know, do I have the right number of syllables or like, is that actually, Oh, is it a, is it a moonless night? Or, hmm, I lost it. You know, that's, that's not what this is about. That describes me on like 90% of my tweets. Like all of a sudden self-consciousness <laughs> creeps, creeps in and you're done. That's right. Yeah. Oh, it is. It, I mean, that's, it's all, it's all the same on some level, isn't it? Um, that, uh, that sort of, you know, anytime you speak in public, the, uh, it turns out it's the great paradox. It turns out that the thing that people really want is a, a clean, clear, natural voice. But of course, as soon as you become aware of that, uh, such, such a voice is nearly impossible because yeah. you're second guessing yourself and, and yeah, considering how it's going to be received. So, okay. So one final Twitter question, uh, like, like when you work there, like, do you know somebody on the inside? Could you be like, Hey dude, Give me like a hundred thousand followers. Like, can I have fifty thousand, please? <laughs> Does that ever happen? No, you could no. The, I, the 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 trade was not in followers, but rather in I think actually a much rarer currency, which was usernames. Um, and uh, and you know I think this is this is pretty reasonable actually. There's so many usernames that um, were registered once and then totally abandoned. You know maybe somebody got a great name like uh, you know the poet at the poet. Oh my God. I would love to be at the poet on Twitter. Maybe they got it, you know, back in 2008, right after the service launched and they never logged in again. And so, uh, very often working on the media team, we would get a sort of a very polite, very sort of nervous query from, it could be anybody. It could be somebody working at a TV network or it could just be, you know, a poet out there in the world saying, um, hi, I noticed that at the poet hasn't tweeted since 2008. And I was wondering that, 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 and, uh, and sure enough, we had a, you know, we had a protocol where we'd kind of check and, and make sure it really had been abandoned, but then, man, you could tell you were just making somebody's day, their, their whole year when you sent the email and said, okay, you are now at the poet. <laughs> and so how do you get followers? Do you know, do you have any insight into how like you build followers? Because I, I get this question, uh, or I've heard this discussion innumerable times, especially among writers who are like just launching into Twitter and like. It's almost like immediately frustrating. They're like, fuck, like you got to really work at this to build up a following. Like, how do you do that unless you're already famous when you walk in the door? You know, honestly, I, I don't think that there is a, a great answer to that. Um, there's certainly not a silver bullet. There's not a, you know, one magic trick that you have overlooked, um, you know, to get your Twitter followers. Uh, it is true that now, now that it's so big and, and it does tend to mirror real world celebrity. It does tend to uh, reward the early adopters. And this is true of all these systems, not just Twitter, but Instagram and Vine and, you know, Tumblr and everything else. Uh, there's sort of a snowballing, you know, compound interest effect. And so if you were there early and you came strong out of the gate, then chances are you'll have a lot of followers today. So it is hard, especially because the numbers are all so big. I mean, when I started on Twitter, I, get, I can't really remember, but I feel like there might not have been anyone with more than, you know, a million followers. And certainly for normal people, civilians, you know, non-celebrities, it was 
it was more likely that you would have a few hundred followers or you know, maybe the single digit thousands. And that seemed like a lot. Of course, now there's been this great inflation and those numbers seem quite paltry. I don't think that they should. I think, you know, if I was advising a writer on Twitter, I would, uh, I would tell them to like put masking tape on their screen on the part that, that actually shows their followers and, uh, and just forget about it. You know, just because it's not, I mean, it's just, that's not, in the early days, that's not the number that matters. I think it's far more important to be part of interesting conversations that can mean joining other people's conversations. It can mean starting conversations of your own. Um, but to me, it's, it's going to be slow. There's, there's no, you know, there's no magic beans that will, that will grow a great stock up to the sky for you. Um, so instead you have to kind of take it step by step and, uh, and there's no other way to do it except, you know, accruing positive interactions. Yeah. And that's it. That's the point of the realm. You want to hear something weird? Uh, I have like this OCD thing where I don't like to get into conversations on Twitter because I feel like it makes my feed look weird. Like I want just like, <laughs> like it's funny. gotta, yeah. Like it's, like, it's like gotta be orderly. Like I'll be like, damn, it looks messy. Like I t clean my feed like obsessively to make sure that like, if somebody comes to it, they can like read it. Like that is funny. Is that, that's, that's a little troubling too. Is that weird? I appreciate, I, I appreciate the sensibility. I'm, I'm someone who also kind of likes symmetry and I like sort of, everything on the page to just be right. But it definitely is. Uh, that is, that is like, I feel like I can hear Twitter itself, the great spirit of Twitter rumbling, like, <laughs> Oh no, that's not how it works. You know, <laughs> Maybe that's no, Twitter problem. is best. Twitter is best. I, 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 I think I, I believe this Twitter is best when it's chaos and when things are flying left and right and it all, you know, when Twitter is at its best, when it, when it doesn't make any sense to reread it, you know, three hours later. It's Twitter that it's best when it's, it's this sort of frothy, lovely little cresting wave of, of, uh, you know, people all joking with one another and ping ponging back and forth and shooting little stars at each other. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, yeah. And it's going to be interesting. I mean, from the perspective of like, let's say biographers or, you know, somebody who's trying to do research, you know, years from now and they look back and, you know, they zero in on a specific person and they've got like 50,000 tweets to go through. Like that's a trove, you know, I'm sure Twitter's going to be used as a resource. It's probably already being used as a resource. It certainly is in the context of journalism, but, uh, you know, there's an enormous like historical import, you know, in terms of. Absolutely. The, the, no, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and so like, yeah, isn't like, aren't tweets, like aren't tweets being like uploaded to like the library of Congress or something like that now? Like they're being actually like, uh, archived. So I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. So I've heard, I, you know, I, I'm going to, I'll confess something to you. It's not a, uh, not a big secret, but, um, I don't necessarily make a big deal out of it. I actually, um, have a script that I run little, little mini program on my computer. I run it every so often and it deletes all of my old tweets. And the reason is, is I, I kind of had this, and it's not like there's dark secrets in my old tweets. They're not profound or, you know, they're just dopey. There's links to things and me talking to people. But I realized thinking about this exactly, you know, and, and having conversations with people about this, about the great archive of, of Twitter, I realized that I didn't, I didn't personally like that vision of Twitter as the, as the archive of your life. I much prefer the vision that is like a crazy conversation around a campfire, you know, and people's words are just kind of spiraling up into the night air and then, and then disappearing. It's not being recorded by, you know, some, somebody with a, a tape recorder to, to archive forever. And uh, so I decided I was, you know, I obviously can't change the way Twitter works, but I was going to change my own little feed. And so how did you do it? It's like a, you Snapchatted your Twitter. 
Yeah, I, did. I sort of did. I sort of did. Um, it is, I mean, it's interesting as, a, as an aside. I think it's quite telling that people are so excited about these, these forms of communication that are more ephemeral. There is something about the, the infinite archive that uh, is not always what we want. To make it, to make it work for me, to make, to make my Twitter more like Snapchat, I, uh, it took a little bit of programming knowledge, um, which is just about exactly the amount I have, a little bit. And uh, I wrote a script, you know, Twitter has an API that lets you communicate with it and give it commands um, with a lot of different programming languages. And uh, there's one that I, I like and, and kind of am the most proficient with. So, uh, yeah, it's, just, it's, you know, it's a simple program. It just loops through all my tweets. And, you know, if they're older than a certain threshold of a couple weeks, it just deletes them. Mm-hmm. And that's it. I just kind of kind of like kind of like a vacuum cleaner. I just pull it out every so every so often and and run it and I can see I of course it's spitting all the little output onto my screen on my on my computer like the the home of the vacuum and uh, yeah it's just it's just going through the tweets yeah. I call it the name of the script is uh, Langoliers I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the movie Langoliers or read the original Stephen King story but it's about monsters that eat the world <laughs> so can people get this thing like is it is it available for sale or is it just for yeah they can they can it's it's yeah no I posted it online it's uh, you know. Again, it's, I'm not the best programmer, so it's not the not the best code, but it works. And um, it's on uh, it's on GitHub, uh, a, a program. I mean, a site uh, where people share code and programs like this. And if you search for my name, Robin Sloan, on GitHub, you will find it. Okay. So, all right. All this technology background uh, and this interest, you know, going back to childhood and to, in computers and uh, and the and the rest, and then you wind up writing a novel which seems to be a departure. You know, you, you went from like digital to analog in a pretty distinct way. Uh, can you talk about how you made that leap and how Mr. Penumbras, uh, you know, found its origins? Yeah, sure. I mean, but the important thing to know is that while it's true that I was interested in computers um, as a kid and, and then never stopped being interested in them, I was also always interested in books. You know, I was a huge reader. Uh, I was a total library kid. I just haunted the shelves at the, at the Troy public library in Troy, Michigan. Uh, I was reading all the science fiction, all the fantasy, all the choose your own adventure books, all that stuff. Um, books about dragons, books with maps. And that was always there, you know? So I, I think a certain kind of person who reads a lot of books as a kid thinks almost immediately like, Oh yeah, maybe I can do this too. One day you, you have that vision for yourself. And I think for a lot of people, it gets, squelched at some point, either because you just discover something else you're much better at or, or, you know, whatever, you know, your, your temperament changes. For me, it never went away. It did get submerged. I, I sort of think of it as sort of like a underground river or something uh, because I was doing all this other stuff, all this tech and media stuff. But man, I was always aware of that, of that trickle of interest, more than a trickle, you know, a real, a real steady stream of interest. So there beneath the surface. And you, you, you yeah. And, and I just, I knew it was, I knew it was just a matter of time before it came back to the surface. Okay. And so, and like we should say, um, just so people are aware, like you, in addition to working at Twitter, you also worked at current TV, uh, which is the Al Gore or was formerly the Al Gore network, which is now, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, now, 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 now late lamented current TV. Yeah. But is it so it got bought by Al Jazeera, didn't it? That's right. That's right. So the channel space is now Al Jazeera America, which okay. I think is pretty cool. Yeah. And so that you worked for Current at its, you know, in its early days. Um, you worked for Twitter in its relatively early days. And then you worked for a place called Pointer, which I'm not as familiar with. Pointer is a cool place. It's a, it's a think tank and a school devoted to journalism. And uh, it was set up in Florida by a, 
really, really forward-thinking newspaper publisher years ago, and uh, it's still a, a place that's known as kind of a leader in journalistic ethics and thinking about the future of news and where it's all going and, and frankly, teaching journalists to be better journalists. And I, uh, it was actually the first place I ever worked. I had a fellowship there right after college, and uh, it was awesome. It was, it, was, it was good, though, you know, thinking about these, these two threads, the technology and the writing, because it was a place that was very interested in technology. If you think about 2003, 2004, like that's a pretty crazy time to be thinking about news and the future of news. But this place, the Pointer Institute, was also, I would say, primarily concerned with the craft of writing. Really, people went there, working journalists went there because they wanted to be better writers. So it was just cool to be able to listen in to these conversations about sentence structure, you know, and, and plot and character and setting scenes and all that stuff. So and you got a fellowship there when you when you when you left, uh, what was it, Michigan State? Michigan State, yeah, that's right. Okay, so how did that happen? You just applied, I guess, and got in. I did. I did just apply. I was. I had decided uh, at kind of the last minute that uh, I was. An, I was an economics major, I should say, and uh, I decided at the last minute that I maybe didn't want to go into economics, and uh, for a variety of reasons, I had kind of gotten interested in journalism, in media, particularly where it intersected with the web, which was it was then that still sort of nascent. At least it seemed nascent to me, and. I didn't know much about it, but I knew that I liked it. So uh, the, the bad news is I, I didn't actually have any journal, journalistic training and I didn't have any experience, any skills. And uh, so it seemed it was actually a fairly grim prospect to start looking for something to do after school. As it turned out, this fellowship was perfect because their mission there at the Pointer Institute was to bring in some people who perhaps would not otherwise have gone into journalism. It was a, essentially a fellowship. It was a fellowship for late bloomers. Wow. A fellowship for, for uh, you know, people who, who had not already set themselves on that on that path of getting all the internships at the newspapers and, you know, filling their, their oh. done none of those things. It was perfect for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You broke up a little bit there, but you were just I think I think I caught the gist. So it strikes me again yeah. though, I should say that uh you, you know, your like your your skill set, your educational background is unusual for a writer. Like first of all, to be uh, well versed in technology, and then second of all, to have a degree in economics. <laughs> like those right, those right. two those two things typically you, you don't see on a resume for somebody who's writing fiction. But I imagine they're probably helpful. So, uh, like, what did you learn uh, in your study of economics, if anything, that's helped you uh, in your writing life? Well, I you know I think if you read. Uh my fiction, particularly the novel, but, but some of the shorter stuff too, I think you will see a fascination with uh, numbers, with quantitative systems, certainly with software and computers and code. And uh, that's, I don't think that's that unusual. I think you think of uh, somebody like Borges, uh, Jorge Luis Borges, the great writer of kind of cosmic short stories. And like, I mean, I don't actually know what he studied, but he might as well have been an economics major or a math major or a mathematician. His, his stories are themselves so, so sort of mathematical. They have some of those, the same abstractions. And uh, that's always what I kind of liked. You know, I, I feel like I, I always liked fiction that was obviously interested in those things. So, uh, so yeah, that's the kind of fiction I tend to write too. And I think that's good. I think it's good to bring a bit of a, a bit of a quantitative world into the, into the more, um, you know, whatever the more imaginary world. And so, and then when it comes to Mr. Penumbras, like, it, like it's actual origins, like you had been working, um, you know, out in the technology sector and then you started to have 
you know, what a vision, a title, a person, like, how did it find, yeah. how did it find its way into your mind? Well, here, you know, because I, because I know you, you care so much about the, the sort of reality of the craft and, and maybe some of the, the more candid details. And I know your listeners do too. I'll, uh, I'll tell you that the real answer there hinges. I mean, of course it's, it's a long story, but, but the real sort of important thing was, I would say twofold. One is that working at current TV, which is that first job I had out here in San Francisco, I had two colleagues there about my same age, um, similar interests. They read similar things. And like me, they were both sort of, aspiring fiction writers. And what this meant at the time is that we didn't actually write fiction, any of us, and, and I don't think any of us had in, in a long time. But we did still think about it a lot. We dreamed about it. We talked about it. You know, we'd go on, on these coffee runs in the middle of the day and probably take more time than we ought to have just sitting around talking about, you know, what we liked and what we'd read and what we dreamed of writing. And that was really important. If I had not met those guys at the time and had those conversations and, and had that little incubator for this vision of myself, I would not have ever written this novel. The, the social dimension for me was really, really important. And then the other kind of pivotal thing was that uh, one of us, not me, but uh, another friend of mine finally got organized and uh, got himself together to do National Novel Writing Month, uh, which of course is the great thing that happens every November. And so it was November of 2008, actually. I remember it very clearly. He uh, announced that he was going to do it, and then he did it. And by the end of the month, he had this giant, floppy manuscript, this amazing story, um, sort of a Thomas Pinchonian, you know, kind of crazy cavalcade of events. And uh, I was, no exaggeration here, I was so jealous of his manuscript that I resolved then I was going to write something. Uh, I was going to actually, you know, match my my dreams with uh, with action. And uh, it wasn't a, a big copy manuscript. It was just a short story, but... But that was the beginning. It, it started with spite and jealousy. And the short story. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to ask you because you have these social interactions, which, uh, like you know, should also be noted were uh, were IRL interactions. You know, which that's right. Yeah, that's right. Purely, purely meet space. Yeah. yeah, distinguishes them. But then you go on to write this book, which is uh, a big success and has sold a lot of copies and gotten great reviews and so on and so forth. Um, what about like, did you, did you experience any like envy, you know, or, or like jealousy? Like, did you have that feeling around you from people that you knew, uh, writer friends or anything? I don't, I, I don't think so. Of course it's, it's impossible to know. Um, I don't think so. And I think part of the reason is that, you know, as with all stories, um, the, the short version, uh, you know, writes novel, gets it published, sells some copies is uh, is quite compressed. In fact, there's a lot of steps along that path. You know, the the, the year I mentioned was 2008. The book came out in let's see 2012, and in that four year gap, there were a lot of little projects, and it, it really formed a very natural um, sort of step ladder. You know, there were short stories to start, and I was just self publishing those in the Kindle store um, and on my own website for free, and you know, they had a tiny readership. I would, I would hear from a few people that they liked them and it was encouraging, definitely encouraging enough to, to keep me going. I did a Kickstarter project that was a, a novella that I was again going to self-publish and, you know, mail out to people. I was going to figure out a way to print this book myself. And again, that was, you know, it was it seemed very successful to me, but in by any sort of traditional publishing standard, it was quite modest. And uh, And so actually, I think by the time this novel came out in real bookstores, you know, from a real publisher. 
it seemed, I don't want to say it seemed like a natural progression that was definitely presumptuous. Um, but I don't know that it was a surprise to people. I think they had seen me toiling and seen me kind of taking one step after another for, for quite a few years at that point. Okay. And so did you, when, like once you got that, you know, you had that period of, uh, Envy right after NaNoWriMo and your friend writing that yeah, novel, yeah. novel. And then like you, that set you on your track to actually get down to work on your own writing. Yeah, and then... exactly that. And it was, it, was, it was very distinct. I mean, I started turning down, you know, invitations to go get drinks and, you know, go have barbecues in people's backyard. I started blocking off time on my calendar. I really, I really got serious in that, in that next year, 2009. Okay. And so is that a permanent shift? I mean, like when you think of yourself and you identify professionally, uh, is writer the primary, uh, descriptor or do you find yourself still a hybrid or? I would say it is the primary descriptor. I mean, certainly at this point, um, it is, and this is, feels miraculous to say, but it is, it is writing that's paying the bills now. Um, I, I, I do not, I have not abandoned the other stuff and I, and I wouldn't ever abandon the other stuff. And I sense that in the future, there are going to be opportunities to kind of come back around and and work more intensely with the technology piece again. But for now, uh, yeah, I'm a writer. I'm I'm writing books. I uh, I've got one. And I'm working on another one. And that's certainly I mean that's certainly how I spend my days. I am set up here at this at this very table, just tapping away. Okay. And so when you talk about maybe coming around back to you know circling back to technology later and maybe some sort of fused manner, you know, where you're marrying the writing work with technology. I think that's what you were getting at. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you mean? Like, do you have a vision or is there some, you know, do you have, I like, don't know. No, I, I don't, I don't know yet. And, you know, you mentioned the term media inventor earlier, which I kind of made up and, and then embraced and, and have tried to sort of spread around. And, and it really is that spirit of invention that I, I like the best. I, I've done things here and there, you know, I've, I've written some stories that, only really work on the web. You know, they, they're on these long web pages and you scroll down and kind of weird things happen on the web pages. You scroll. I, I've made apps um, that, that, you know, they're not apps like Twitter is an app or, you know, the, your weather app is an app. They're, they're just essays. They're kind of arguments, but they're bound up in the, in the format of the phone. And uh, I just have this strong sense that there are going to be new formats and new ways of telling stories that, are native or, or will be native to our phones and our tablets and all this crazy new stuff. And we haven't invented them yet, but we're going to, and I just think it is going to be fun to be part of that invention. So, well, Oh, you know, you know, like you say that, and I think I remember like, this is before I'd, I'd heard of you and Mr. Penumbras is uh, I want to say you wrote uh, one of those tap essays. That's right. I will. I mean, I, I think I wrote the first tap essay. I'm not hundred percent sure. I don't think you can ever be, Totally sure. But uh, yeah, that's exactly right. It was an app called Fish. And uh, I kind of wanted to say something about the internet. And I wanted to do it in this particular format that I, I didn't even have a name for. So I, I kind of came up with the words tap essay. And uh, yeah, that's cool. That's really cool that you ran across that. Yeah, no, I loved it. Like I, I got really like I went through like a month where I was like tap essays are the future. You know, <laughs> like I was, I was completely enamored of them. And I thought like it was the perfect way to, to like read something on the phone. And it was interactive in a clever way. And it was but like, like the technology and like the interactivity element didn't overwhelm the writing and the, uh, and the thought behind it or something. Um, that's awesome. That's, yeah. that's fantastic to hear. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the goal. Awesome. So did you create that? Did you create the tap like app? Or I did. It... I did. I did. Well, well, there's, there is now a complete app. It's called tapestry and it's got all sorts of tap essays 
And that was created by uh, a team of folks. There's actually this little startup company in New York, um, and they're awesome. They're doing an amazing job. They've taken it like light years further. But uh, yeah, they they reached out to me. Um, it was a, a few years ago now. After after that first essay had come out, after that first app that I uh, that I built, and said, hey, I mean, in some ways, this is a classic sort of uh, pattern of invention. You know, I built this one particular thing that sort of solved a particular problem that I saw. And then somebody else came along and said, Hey, uh, this is way bigger. You realize that? And I was like, is it really? Uh, Oh yeah. Oh, of course. Yes. Of course. It's way bigger. Please go forth, go forth and make it big. But, uh, so wait, what, yeah, what, what, started, what, what, what happens oh, then? Like do they, t- they buy the technology from you or do you like become like a, a shareholder in their business or something? I was, I, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm an advisor to the company. My, I will tell you my philosophy. I'll be very candid. I, um, man, I just hate all these software patents and people trying to draw these moats around ideas and, and sort of extract all the money they possibly can from them. I just don't think that's how like things in the world get better or more interesting. So I, I do have a tiny stake in their company. I don't want to seem totally, uh, you know, uh, altruistic here, but, uh, I'll say this, if somebody else came along and started publishing tap essays, uh, totally disconnected from me, and they never sent me an email or never even said hello, didn't even give me any credit, I would think that was awesome. I would have no problems with that whatsoever. Well, there are certain ideas that, like, you know, when t- certain technologies rise up and you start to see, how, like, you know, it seems like, the, like it's very feasible that multiple people could have the same idea. Do you know? Absolutely. I mean, we, oh, no, ex- that's exactly right. We see it all the time. And it, yeah, an idea is almost a, an organic thing that exists outside in between brains. And for somebody to say, like, oh, no, that's my idea. It's just, I think it, it I mean, as you say, I think it's a, a misunderstanding of the way it, it all works. So do you have any feelings about like literary appropriation and art that uses, um, you know, that uses appropriation heavily? Uh, oh, I'm all, I'm all for it. I, I, I really, truly wish... You know, for as, for as much space as we've carved out with, with fair use, uh, it's still so murky. I mean, anybody who's ever thought about, you know, using a picture of Batman on their website or, or whatever, you know, writing a story about Batman, uh, everyone thinks about this. They kind of think, oh, wait, is this, is this okay? I think it is, but I'm not sure. And uh, I frankly wish that was much clearer. And, and I wish the, the set of policies around that were much more liberal, I think. Yeah. I think that kind of that kind of recombination is at the heart of culture and we should I don't know, we should find a way to recognize that. I think so too, and I think there's an irony involved. Like you think about like movie clips in particular, like that's like a realm where people were grabbing things and putting them up on the web and at first there was like this pushback and the studios got all in uh you know, in a tizzy about it because they thought that their content was being ripped from them. But in, in in reality, what these people are doing on their blogs or whatever is creating essentially commercials for the content that these companies sell. It's like it's like the best kind of fandom, you know. Like, uh, yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. And and you know, even if it wasn't, this is a hard argument to make to a big, you know, global corporation. But still, even if it wasn't free advertising, the fact of the matter is, all of those creative works rest themselves on the shoulders of creative work that came before um the influence the influence might not be quite as clear but it is indisputably there so it's just it just seems oh it's so so many kinds of wrong to want to to want to be the last link in the chain you're kind of like 
you know, yeah, I got, you know, I, I got this from, from that guy who got it from her, who got it from him, you know, all the way back to, you know, Mark Twain or, or the Greeks or, or whoever, <laughs> but you know, this is the end of the line. The buck stops here. <laughs> well, it's like, it's like, what's the old, like I'm paraphrasing the old Einstein quote, but it's like the secret to genius is knowing how to hide your sources or whatever. You know? Yeah, you got it. You got it. Yeah. And, you know, I should also say just to be clear for people listening is that like when I'm talking about like movie clips and appropriation, I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting that like you should be able to like, you know, d like d show a, a full length feature film on your website and like charge admission or something. I'm just saying like, you know, putting up clips and doing funny things with subtitles or, you know, noodling around the way that people do on YouTube. Um, you know, that to me seems like something people shouldn't get too upset about. And, and, I, yeah. and I don't think that, I don't think they are. I think they've sort of realized the, the upside and, and realized that it vastly overshadows the, any downside that there might've been. So we, we do, I think that's right. We do seem to be in a better place now. There was that initial spasm of, uh, you know, fear and loathing, uh, just kind of as YouTube first emerged. And, and I think all the studios and, and people who, who hold the rights to these things saw them in a place that they did not expect to see them. But, uh, but yeah, we've gotten past that. And, and, you know, a lot of this change ends up being generational. Uh, it really does for as much as we want to argue about it and, you know, write op-eds and, you know, send angry cease and desist letters to one another. <laughs> the, 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 real, the real change comes as a, as a new group of people kind of take the reins. And I think that's going to be a, a good thing. Yeah, well, and it's interesting, too. Like, I think about as a parent, like, how much, like, my daughter, like, reads e-books at night before she goes to, like, we always read one paper book and then she gets to read an e-book or two or three if she begs me for them. Um, because the lights are out and like the, the iPad, like they really are cool for kids books. Like you have like a little bit of interactivity and the pictures are bright and you know, the thing reads it to her. And I mean, I, I think that's okay. Like I'm not screwing my kid up, but I do, or at least I hope not. I, I worry about that a little bit. Like, uh, and then there's a part of me too. That's like, God, you know, if, if it's nice to make her feel like she's getting away with something by getting to read extra books. I mean, there's worse things, worse things. To there are, there know. are undoubtedly unquestionably far worse things. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, do you have any strong feeling about like, you know, uh, like the new, you know, younger generations and people who are growing up in a world where this stuff is just the norm as opposed to something that's been developed, you know, or that has come, you know, come into being as like a massive disruption and change in, in their lives. You know, like, do you think, I don't, I don't know. I don't have strong feelings. You know, I don't, I don't have kids myself, so I haven't been forced to make those really quite difficult decisions myself. Uh, I, I always wonder about things like, you know, uh, a kid's first smartphone, you know, like when does that happen? Right. When does it happen? How does it happen? That seems, I bow down to the parents who are figuring that out right now. Uh, I will say though, I will say that, I am jealous of today's kids who get to play Minecraft. Have you run across Minecraft? My, my nieces love that shit. Like they are, oh. I was trying to access it, but it was just like lots of boxes and you know, I, I'm not a video gamer, so I don't know like what to, how to do that, but they were completely obsessed with it. It's so perfect for kids because I mean, the truth is it just takes a lot of time. You need to be a kid with like a pretty clear schedule to be able to sort of make sense of Minecraft and then, and then put your amazing creations together. But it is, it is everything that I always wanted Legos to be. And uh, it's awesome. I think it's, I think we're going to get a genius or, or a whole generation of geniuses, you know, little Einsteins who uh, upon reflection will realize that they had their first glimpse of, you know, quantum foam or the, the inner <laughs> dynamics of the universe, uh, which is amazing, amazing game. So I wait, think it's awesome. So wait, okay. I so think it's like the greatest piece of culture of the last 
five years. Wow. Okay. So like Minecraft is like digital Legos and Legos are like analog Minecraft. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Pretty much. It is, it is all about creation. It is in Minecraft. There's a little more to it. There is a sense of actually harvesting resources and, and actually like a little economy. You have to, there are trade-offs to make, but fundamentally you're going to build, you know, the fortress of your dreams, the great tree house, the, the castle, you know, in the jungle, whatever it is. Uh, and, and you never run out of pieces. Okay, so everybody listening, uh, Robin has just given you one more way to uh, distract yourselves and waste your time. <laughs> yeah, yeah be careful. I think far better, far better, far better to watch over a, a kid's shoulder. They they do seem to to have a knack for it in a way that uh, I certainly don't. I also I can definitely I can without reservation recommend Minecraft videos on YouTube. You just go to YouTube, search for like Minecraft, you know, fortress or minecraft you know uh tour and basically you'll see these amazing videos of 12 year olds giving you these sort of travelogues through the realms they've created and it's oh. just it's the best wow i gotta check this out okay so uh one last question what's uh what's next for you what are you working on i heard you mention another couple of books right yeah no well no, I'm, I'm just working on one one new novel right now i'm making great progress i'll, I'll have my first draft in the can pretty soon i think and uh, and that's pretty cool. Uh, it's it's been a struggle for me to to sort of figure out how to do this. I, I think a lot of people, as they shift from like writing being the thing that they always snuck into the evenings and weekends and the, the sort of spare hours when it becomes like their job, it changes. I mean, of course it does. So I've been figuring that out, how to make it a job and make that work. But uh, been doing well. Um, I'm excited about this new novel. Um, but I'm also excited once it kind of starts moving through the, the publishing machine. I, I am excited to to get back to doing some more digital projects. I think I'm going to be somebody who's kind of ping-ponging between both worlds for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it sounds like they feed each other, you know, and that like if you let one go for too long, then there's a like a significant and important part of your creative life that would atrophy. I think that's right. Yeah. So okay, and so when you say you have a like you're close to having a first draft in the can, like what kind of writer are you? Does that mean you're close to being ready to send it off to your agent and your editor, or does that mean you have like five more drafts to go? That's a great question. That is a great question. Uh, I think I am closer to the latter, which is to say that there's still a lot of work to do. I tend to write fast and leave it messy and kind of smoosh it around a lot afterwards. And I love and I love revising. I love the multiple iterations of, of all the drafts. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole process. So in a lot of ways, I, I'm always racing towards that. However, um, <laughs> for better or for worse, I'm also not shy about sharing those first drafts. So uh, yeah, my, my, my team, my, uh, my agent and editor and, and all my, you know, my first readers, those, those friends that I made back at Current TV that I, that I still have today, you know, they're, they're still the, the people whose feedback I, I kind of rely upon the most. So They'll be getting something in the mail. They're going to be getting a big, fat, messy manuscript in the mail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, listen, it's been a great pleasure talking with you, and it's a it's a great pleasure to feature this book in the TMB Book Club and to give it a little push. And uh, I just really appreciate the time and wish you well on the next project. Well, thank you, Brad. It was a real pleasure talking to you, and, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, you guys, there's the Robin Sloan. Go get his novel, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore, available now in paperback from Picador. You can find him online at robinsloan.com. He's on the Twitter, where his handle is at Robin Sloan, and he's also on the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Go get that app, the free official Other People app, the official app of this podcast. Did I mention that it's free? You get that 
you can uh, you know you can stream all the episodes. You can have access to the full archives, all two hundred and eighty something episodes, and it's very cheap. And it's a good way to support this podcast. Uh, also, if you uh, want to support the cause, go join the TNB Book Club. You get a book delivered to your door every thirty days for less than the cost of a book. There aren't that many deals like that out there in the world. Think about it for a second. A book delivered to your door every thirty days for less than the cost of a book. And uh, there's no strings attached. There's no uh, there's no loophole or weird thing that's gonna like pop up and surprise you. Nine ninety nine a month, new book every month at door. So if you're interested in that, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. Uh, episode three hundred. I don't know. Maybe I should get Dan Brown. <laughs> Just throw everybody a curveball. Or, or like Daniel Steele. I actually, I want to talk to Daniel Steele. I want to talk to Dan Brown. Like, sincerely. Without irony. Wait a minute, is Daniel Steele alive? <laughs> oh my god. I feel like an asshole now. Let me go look this up just to make sure. Hang on. And uh, she is alive. She's, uh, according to Wikipedia, she's alive. She's 66 years old, uh, it says here. And uh, she's also sold over 800 million copies of her books. <laughs> 800 million. Sweet Jesus. Try to wrap your head around that for a second. She gets like two bucks. She's a billionaire? Is that right? I need to write a romance novel. Because uh, clearly this is where the money is. People want to fall in love. That's the formula. Women, in particular, love romance novels. Some women, anyway. My grandmother, very prim and proper Catholic woman, read Harlequin, uh, Harlequin romance novels uh, addictively. Females uh, enjoy this. They do. They want to have sex with, like, a fireman or whatever. They want to uh, escape. They want to run away with a uh, forest ranger with good forearms. Uh, or a storm chaser, or like a pilot or something. You understand? I know what women want. I'm mansplaining. That's what I'm doing here. I'm mansplaining. Please remember that Cervantes died of diabetes and that William Blake died of gallstones. That's it for now. Thanks to Robin Sloan. Go get his novel. Thanks to you guys for listening. I'm back again on Sunday with another show. I hope you're having a good week. I hope you're not, uh, you're not down in the dumps. Is Mercury in retrograde yet? Is that happening soon? I wish I didn't know about that. I wish, uh... Nobody had ever told me that, because if, if I didn't know about it, it wouldn't bother me. But now, it's inside my head. I don't even know what it means. But apparently, it fucks everything up. Shit. Shit. <laughs>